Our scripture reading this morning is from Titus chapter 3, verses 8 through 15. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. And do your best to speed Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Father, I pray you would use these words to speak to us, to reveal yourself to us so that we walk away from here as your people, knowing you better, knowing you more. And Father, that our lives would glorify you Speak to us, guide us, convict us, encourage us. All for you and for your sake, Father. We ask this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. That was super weak. I mean, I figured with all the visitors, it'd be a little bit louder. Good morning. Saying visitors, I mean, I understand it with Elm Creek family. They, it's so hard to get them to say good morning. So glad that you're here with us this morning and you're wondering, okay, so what in the world does this passage have to do with baptism? Well, specifically like focused, no, it has nothing to do with baptism. Now it relates, it does relate, uh, but the way that we do things here at Elm Creek is we just work through a book of the Bible. This happens to be the next passage, in fact, the last passage in Titus um, and that we're wrestling with and going through. Uh, and then starting next week for the ECC family, uh, we're going to start working through the summer series of the book of Psalms. Now, we're not going again psalm by psalm. Uh, we're picking and choosing. Uh, we're doing 12 different psalms throughout the summer months, and so uh, hopefully you'll be able to join us for that. Uh, for those who are visiting, Titus is written by, the book of Titus is written by Paul to, surprisingly, Titus who Paul left on the island of Crete to basically organize the churches. Um, Paul had planted the churches. They were starting to grow. Disciples were coming together um, in the different cities and the different villages. And now they need to be organized. They need leadership. They need elders. They need some sort of guidance. Um, And then on top of that, not only trying to get things organized and um, and trying to be faithful, uh, but there's false teachers that have made their way into the different churches and are starting to influence those churches and those people, those believers, in a negative way. And so Paul writes this letter, not just to tell Titus, okay, so this is how you can organize the church with godly men as elders, but... You also need to avoid false teachers. You need to be able to recognize false teachers. You need to preach the gospel message, the truth of God's word. For us, that would be 
the Bible for them. That would be the Old Testament and the different letters from the apostles that they had. Because that word is trustworthy, and it is through that word that the Spirit transforms a life that was dead in sin to alive in Christ. Baptism. So it's not direct, but it's there. Okay, now don't hear me say baptism. We're going to talk about what baptism actually does. It doesn't save you. It's a symbol of that death and that life. And so Paul is trying to encourage Titus, and it's not this gentle, like, oh, make sure you work really hard at it. It's like, I insist that you do these things. Because sound doctrine, sound teaching from the Word of God, founded upon and coming from the trustworthy Word of God, leads to transformed lives. No Word of God, no revelation of God through Him, we are not transformed. There is no salvation without hearing the gospel message. Now, it's not the Bible that saves. God saves. But this is how he reveals himself. This is how he reveals the gospel message, the truth of what it means to be saved by grace through faith. And so through hearing and then believing the gospel message of salvation, lives which were once spiritually dead and destined for eternal judgment in hell, are by the power of the Holy Spirit regenerated, Paul says, made new, made spiritually alive, and destined for eternal joy in the presence of God and heaven. That's the good news. Just, just within the last couple of weeks, we read in Titus chapter 3 where he says, remember who you are. You are a transformed person. You are a new creation if you believe in Jesus Christ for your salvation. And remember that because we used to not be that way. We were different. We followed the ways of this world, the passions and the desires of our heart and the culture. But when God saved us, that was flipped on its head and we no longer live for our passions and our desires and our wants, but the wants of our Savior in heaven. Now this transformation... The salvation is not done, Paul says, by any righteous deeds of our own, but only by the power of God. Which means you could be baptized and still go to hell because you don't believe. Rituals do nothing to save an individual. Being a good person does nothing to save an individual following tradition does nothing to save you and I. Now, those can be really good things that can help grow faith, but they in and of themselves do nothing to transform us. And so God intervened. He saved us, Paul says, and adopted us as his children, as sons and daughters of the Father, causing us to receive the inheritance according to the hope of eternal life. And so, we as God's people are to remember that our lives should more and more, day by day, reflect the truths found in the Word of God. So that's, that, that, that's legalism and moralism is, I'm going to be a good person hoping that God is happy with me. But a true believer 
is saved by God, he changes and transforms us, and then day by day we strive to do good works for his glory because we love him, not because we need to earn salvation. Grace is called grace for a reason. It's unmerited, unearned favor of God. And anything else, (laughs) it's not grace. It's not grace. But these false teachers in these churches, and false teachers even today, and we'll talk a little bit about that, focus on those works. They focus on things other. They focus on gospel plus, which is not the gospel of God at all. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 reads this, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So when we are saved, he saved us to do the good works that he has prepared for us, that we might walk daily, that's a daily living in those good works. Now, these good works are the main focus of this last passage in Paul's letter to Titus. And so as a teacher of the truth, Titus is to, Paul says, insist on these things which are excellent and profitable for people. Unlike the teachings of the false teachers, Paul calls each Christian believer and in consequence those of us who believe today to devote themselves to good works. So this, this book, and I'll, I would even say this book as a whole is written to believers. This is written to God's people and how do we proclaim the gospel? How do we live out the gospel message? How do we know who God is? Now, people who are unbelievers can hear this. They need to hear this. (laughs) But these words, specifically from Paul to Titus, is for believers. So this message, if you're an unbeliever today and this is not written for you. I mean, hopefully you, God works in you and you hear the gospel message, but ultimately this is if you are a believer in Christ, if you have been saved by grace through faith, these words are written for you and I to hear and to let it soak in and to remember who God is and to learn more about who God is. So there's three points And if you know me well, that drives me bonkers, the three-point sermon. But there's three points, okay? The first thing is Paul says, I insist that you teach these things. He insists on these things. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. And what saying? What things? Well, it's everything in verses 4 through 7, which we looked at last week. So I just want to read these really quick. If you have your Bibles, you can look at it with me. Verses 4 through 7, chapter 3, verse 4 through 7. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. When we heard the gospel message, we saw the loving kindness and the goodness of our Father, and we believed. And so He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified, being declared right in the eyes of the Father by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. 
these four verses that we looked at last week are a wonderful summary of the gospel message of salvation from sin through Christ alone. Teachers of the word of God are to insist on, or as the King James Version says, constantly affirm. I I like that so much better than insist on. Constantly affirm these things. Why? Because they're excellent and profitable for people, Paul says. As a student pastor, oh my gosh, so long ago. As a student pastor, I had the privilege of learning under some biblically solid preachers, teachers, pastors. And one great piece of advice that they gave me was that every message had to include the gospel message. Because it's the gospel message, the message of salvation for those who are spiritually dead and lost. And that message increases the faith of those who already believe. So every message with the gospel message reaches an unbeliever to hear the gospel maybe for the first time, but also those of us who believe to remember that we were saved by God, that we are no longer our own. It increases our faith as believers. And this is Paul's point to Titus. Constantly affirming the gospel message to these Christian believers is good and profitable for their faith. And that's where verses 9 and 10 come in. In contrast to insisting and constantly affirming the teaching of the gospel message, on the other hand, on the other end of the spectrum, Titus should avoid false teachings from false teachers. False teachers were using controversies, genealogies, and arguments about the law of Moses to stir up division within the church. Quarrels and debates over everything but the gospel message were actually leading people away from the truth of God. These things are unprofitable and worthless for the people of God because they do not center around God, around Christ, around the gospel, around the life of godliness. They are man-centered, intelligence-centered, feelings-centered, culture-centered, tradition-centered preaching and teaching, which does nothing to increase faith and faithfulness to God. Instead, it draws us inward to us. Which is why in churches, in our culture, in America, churches struggle because it's all about them. What do I get out of this? My dad was a pastor growing up. I heard multiple times, like, well, I mean, that's all good and great, but... I want to feel good. I want to enjoy the music. I want the pastor, my father, to preach less and pray less because I got a roast at home that I'm afraid is going to get burned. Or, uh, you know, I had somebody actually tell me this once, 10 minutes, that's about all you got, pastor. You lost me after 10 minutes, which I go, okay, I get that to a certain degree, but that's basically my introduction. So I'm sorry. There's so much richness in the Word of God that we, we shouldn't want to miss what is happening and what God says through those things. 
the gospel increases faith to God, these man-centered, self-centered focuses lead nothing to nothing but self-centered, self-focused, man-centered lives. And so Titus, as a leader, but believers in general, are to avoid these types of teachings and teachers. As for the one who stirs up division through such teaching, warn them once. Uh, this is false. Do not teach this anymore. We want to come alongside you and teach you what's right and tell you what's right. And if they ignore you, you do it twice if needed. And if they continue to teach falsely, if they continue to hear, okay, this is sinful, it is false, it is unprofitable for faithfulness, and they continue to ignore you, then Paul says, have nothing to do with them. You remove them from the church. For us today, this can include not just people within the church, because that happens, right? But it includes those many false teachers, false churches, and false teachings, both in sermons and in music, that we find on the internet. <laughs> or on the radio, even. The Christian, the believer, the one saved by grace through faith, by Jesus Christ, is to have discernment as to whether the message and the teaching and the source, not just a, bloke, a broken clock is right twice a day, right? False teaching, false sources, false churches can get songs and even sermons right every once in a while. It does happen. And God can even use those, crazy enough. I, I don't understand that, but he does use those to bring people to him. But as a Christian, we must have discernment as to whether the message and the teaching and the source of that message and teaching whether it's spoken from up front, whether it is sung in a song, is biblical, solid, and spiritually profitable for the believer. And if not, then they're to be avoided. That means maybe don't listen to the radio anymore. Maybe it means don't listening to a podcast anymore. And so Titus is to constantly affirm the gospel message and to disassociate with false teachers. Not for his sake, but for the gospel's sake. And then Paul repeats a phrase which we have to wrestle with because if you're, nor, if you're a regular attender here at Elm Creek, if something is repeated in a passage, then it's probably what? Important. And he repeats something twice in here. He says, devote yourselves to good works. In verse 8, Paul writes this. He says, I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. And then later in verse 14, he writes, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Now, these are very 
similar statements and both have a purpose given. One says, so that. So this is what I call those connecting words. I think there's some sort of English, fancy English, or what is it? Vinny corrected me once. What are those called? Propositions? No. What are they? What are they called? Come on, English people. I'm a math guy. With a conjunctions. Conjunction function. How many remember that one, right? Obviously not me. (laughs) These connecting words, these conjunctions. So that. This happens so that this will happen. This happens so as to this. And so in the first statement, Titus is to insist on preaching and teaching the gospel message so that those who have believed in God, those who are children of God, may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Now, to be careful does not mean to be gentle or slow, as in, as in like carefully moving something precious or fragile. Don't touch that, or if you have to move it, be super careful, right? That's not what he's talking about. It's, instead, it means to be intentional, deliberate, and purposeful to devote themselves as believers to maintain a good, a life of good works. And being intentional includes the process of learning, which brings in his second statement on good works. The believer in Christ learns to devote themselves to good works. An intentional devotion to living a godly life. Now, again, not legalistically. Like, I got to be a good person so that God will be happy with me. No, God is already happy with me. And because of that, I want to devote myself to good works. Or these good works, to use the words of Paul in chapter 2, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. This is what he says there. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So what are these good works? Well, the list of works in Titus 2 verse 12 and then 1 through 2 chapter 3 verses 1 through 2 which reads this way remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities to be obedient to be ready for every good work to speak of evil of no one to avoid quarreling to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people and i remember when we went through that we're like man that's like the perfect person right it's hard. We, we, how do we do this? And that was kind of the whole point. It's not us. It's Christ in me who's doing that through me. But I still must do, must work in a sense to devote myself to doing these good works. But these lists, these two lists, they're not, they're not exhaustive. They're a great start. And so a general definition is that a Christian... A Christian's good works are those works which are commanded by the word of God. But Paul, instead of, and he does this sometimes, doesn't he? If you read through Paul, like, okay, this is a perfect time to clarify exactly what you mean, and then he doesn't. 
Instead of giving a definition of good works, like, okay, here's a list of good works that I would like you to do, and I think he does that on purpose, he instead focuses on the outcome of those good works. First, he says, learning to devote ourselves to good works helps us to see the urgent needs of those around us. A good example of this is the parable of the Good Samaritan. When he comes upon the beaten man, he sees his need, and then he meets the need. So this is not only just as believers for believers, but as believers for anyone we come across. If we are intentionally keeping our eyes open for chances to do good works, whether small or big, we'll see and we'll meet that need. And then second, learning to be intentionally devoted, devoting ourselves to good works means that we will not be unfruitful. Now that's a Did you catch how weird that is? Maybe that's just me. That's a double negative. You you realize, right? Not be unfruitful. Now, Paul could have just said, be fruitful. (laughs) But he chose instead to say, not be unfruitful. And I think the immediate context helps us. It points us to the unfruitful, unprofitable, worthless teachings of the false teachers. Don't be like them. Don't be unfruitful fruitful. Be fruitful. But that still leaves the question is, what does it mean to be fruitful? Well, in actuality, I think Paul, of course, he doesn't give us this list, but I think Peter actually helps us. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 11, now I'm going to read this really quick, and I think... uh, you can write that down and look it up later. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. And I want you to listen to the similarities of the language between Peter and Paul. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. How? How has, how has his divine power granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, to live a godly life, to good works, if you want to say, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. You hear the similarities? By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may be partakers of the divine nature being made in the image of God, having escaped from the corruption that is our former life that is in the world because of sinful desire, we've been changed. For this very reason, make every effort, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, you hear the sanctification, being made more and more into the image of God, we're working to learn to do good works. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities 
is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. There's your work again. There's your doing good work, being devoted to doing good works. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. This fruit is both our knowledge of Christ, our understanding of who Christ is, but also others' knowledge of Christ. When we intentionally strive to be devoted to doing the good works commanded by us, to us, by God, we grow in our faith and our trust and our knowledge of Christ. We profit from them. But it is also true that our devotion to good works, our life which reflects the gospel truths found in God's word, points other people to the knowledge of Christ. And so as Christians, our good works are more than just simply doing good things for other people. There's more behind those good works. There's an agenda. I know some people don't like that, but there is an agenda. It's not a selfish agenda. To use the words of Christ in Mark chapter 8, verse 36, he says, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? In other words, what good is it for us to, as Christians, feed the hungry, bandage the wounded, pay urgent utility bills or gas bills, if you want to make it more prevalent to today, and heal the sick or even gain the whole world and all its pleasures while they are still destined for eternal death and judgment? What good is it for us to do, quote-unquote, good without pointing them to the one who is good and gives eternal life? Good works done in this way may be good. They are. They're, they're a good thing, but in reality, they are temporary. They're not eternal. And so our lives, our good work as God's children is to be done in such a way that the glory and the grace and the the goodness of Christ is revealed and experienced by those that we are helping. This is what separates our good works from the good works done by unbelievers. Our good works are to point to the one who saved us, who transformed us. They are to reveal his glory to those around us. Not us, not Elm Creek, not me as an individual or you as an individual. Do we serve others because we see an urgent need that needs to be met? Then praise God. Absolutely. That's that's the whole part of the process of what it means to devote ourselves to good works. It's good and it's right, but while we're meeting those urgent needs, whether that's within the context of Elm Creek or your church family that you're a part of or your neighborhood that you're a part of? Are we striving to do the commands of God to point them to Him? That's why I said that's the agenda. 
That's the agenda as Christians. It's a good agenda. It's not a bad uh, agenda. I think some people think, well, you got an agenda? Well, that's terrible. Well, no, my agenda is to give glory to God. I think that's totally fine. It's, my agenda is to get something out of it, make me look good, or to make people like me. Well, yeah, that's a bad agenda because anything other than giving glory to God is a bad agenda. It leads to, not to eternal life, Are we serving other people to make Elm Creek great or ourselves great? Are we, or are we striving to glorify God? Because he's the one who saved us. I did nothing to save myself. A dead man is dead, does nothing. In order to do something, he had to be made alive. And in and of myself, I could do nothing to save myself. This has been one of my greatest struggles in life, this this serving to give glory to Christ. Because it, it feels like if I do serve, then it's for a selfish reason, but then I don't quite know how to give glory to God. And how does how does that sound? What does that look like? And and maybe I'm the only one here who wrestles with this. How do I serve others but give Christ the glory and credit? And I could say, well, I want to build that relationship. And that's true. You need to build those relationships with your neighbors and friends in order to be able to share the gospel. But that's not what Paul says. It it is helpful to a certain degree, but my tendency then is I'm just going to be friendly until I can get to know them and then I kind of put off the whole gospel part because it's hard, it's difficult. What are they going to think of me? And so I struggle with that. And maybe you struggle with that. Maybe it's not a problem for you, and praise God. If that is you, please (laughs) come and talk to me. Teach me. Help me to grow in this. But as I intentionally, and that's a, just because it's, Maybe it's not my gifting or I struggle. It doesn't mean that I can ignore this, right? As I have to intentionally devote myself to God's good works. And as I do that, my prayer for myself and for all of us this morning is that the power of the Holy Spirit, which is in us, never stops, to use the words Paul, training us and equipping us to do these things which are excellent and profitable for us as God's people and for those he is about to save through the gospel message. I have to get it through my thick skull and my hardened heart. So what if people turn me away for the sake of the gospel? Now, if I'm a jerk, that's a whole other thing, right? That's a whole other sermon. But if they reject the gospel, they're rejecting God, not me. And it's hard for me to grasp that. And yet, God uses you and me, whether we struggle or not, to give him the glory, to point them to the gospel, to save them, to change their eternal destination. And so as God's people serve see a need, meet that need, especially the urgent ones. 
but don't do it for ourselves, do it for his glory so that we not, may not be unfruitful like the false teachers, but be fruitful like the teachers who speak the truth of God's word and striving to be obedient to the commands of God found in his word for us. In a bit, we're going we're gonna to do baptism, have a baptism service, and I think this obedience, this obedience to God, this obedience to his commands, this is part of that. And I'm going to pray, we're going to sing one last song, and I'm going to talk a little bit about that um, right before we go through the baptism service. But my hope is that we can remember this passage, remember these truths of good works and obedience. Because baptism, I think, encompasses all, encompasses all of that. So let's pray. We'll sing our song, and then we'll celebrate the obedience of these six individuals to be baptized. Father, I pray. I pray that these words would seek into us, Father, that they would not be... Um, we would not see them as hollow. Father, your words never come back empty. Even for us as believers, I pray, Father, that our faith would increase and my faith would increase it. That though I may struggle, Father, to do good works to bring you glory rather than just being nice to people, help me, Father, to know and to learn to be better. How, do, how does that happen to be devoted to these good works, Father, that you have prepared for me beforehand, all of us as your people. And I pray, Father, if there's someone here this morning who has not been saved by you, that, Father, you would soften their hearts, that you would move in a mighty and glorious way to save them, reveal your goodness and your kindness through your Son, justify them, and save them from your wrath, Father, so that they might inherit eternal life according to the hope that you have given us. We ask this, Father, for you are good and gracious and wonderful in your name. Amen. Why don't you stand and we'll sing our final song and then we'll have a seat afterwards. <laughs>